0: Thank you. Good evening. Man, I had a good day today. It's not like I always have bad days, but I had an exceptional day, good day today. And I think it was because the sun was out, shining, pretty warm, and I could get outside and do a little yard work. You heard that, didn't you? A little yard work. But we are in, <laughs> I hear some laughter. 1 Samuel chapter 13, we're going to go, of course, all of 13 and partly through 14, I'll leave the rest of the guys. But uh, as we begin to look at Saul's early reign, he's been uh, coronated king twice now. But we need to take note how his relationship towards God and Samuel will begin to wane will begin to uh, subside because of what's really going on in Saul's heart. He starts to make foolish and unwise decisions, and then he tries to cover those decisions up by really being disobedient to God with, with his lies. So chapter 13, verse 14 says this. I'm going to read from the always read from the New King James, but I'm going to do a couple of different versions here. New King James says this, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel. The New King James says this because when you read the, uh, the NIV, you might think there's some discrepancies there, and we'll look at that. But the NIV says this in verse one, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Now, what's he saying is Saul's first was he was proclaimed king at Mizpah. Remember, as he was leaving, some cried out, uh, how can this man save us? Then remember, he had his verse first of victory against the Ammonites. That was still in the first year. So they go back up. This time they go to Gilgog and they renew uh, his kingship there. And in this second year, Saul will begin to go to war against the Philistines. That's what's happening. So it says Saul reigned one year. He defeated the Ammonites. And when he had reigned two years over Israel, he goes to battle against the Philistines. So remember uh, his battle against the Ammonites when he slaughtered the two yoke of oxen and called the men of Israel Israel. To this battle, there was about 300,000, 330 men that came out. Out of that 330,000 men, Saul establishes his army with just 3,000 men. So I guess he thought he had the choice, he had the best, but that's still a small number to me. And so that's his standing army right now, 3,000 men. Verse 2, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash, that was where Saul's camp was, and in the mountains of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin, about 15 miles away. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. The fact that Israel was gathering an army put the Philistines on high alert because life was fine with the Philistines, because they had everyone in subjugation here. So as long as the children of Israel didn't kick against the ox go, didn't start any problems, as long as the Philistines could go in and raid their farm territory and and do what they wanted to do, everything was fine. That's that's what was going on. That's going to move Jonathan's heart, not Saul. Remember when uh, God was giving the His commandments, not only the 10, but all of the rest of the things Moses brought down from Sinai. He says this in Exodus chapter 23, verses 32 through 33. He says, you shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods as they go through the wilderness. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Judges chapter two, same thing goes on, verses two through three. Uh, when the angel of the Lord comes to them at Bokin, when they make a covenant, he rebukes them, which that angel is Jesus Christ. And he says this, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side and their God shall be a snare to you. We have to understand as believers in Jesus Christ, he has set us free from the bondage of sin, but we have to walk these things out by the power of the Holy Spirit. If we become lackadaisical in our walk, we can easily go back into bondage. That happens to a lot of people, uh, I think it's Ephesians that says we must walk circumspectly, acrobose, like we're on a tight wire, looking at everything and understanding where our feet go and what our ears hear and what our mouths say. If we are doing those things, Christ Jesus will reign in our hearts richly. But if we don't, we give the flesh an opportunity to start craving the things that are contrary to the spirit. That's what's going on here. Romans chapter six, verses 12 through 14, and then 16 says this. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Verse 16, do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey? You are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. We are looking at these physical battles to, to, uh, this evening. But it also goes for spiritual warfare in our lives. It's the believers walk with the Lord. We have those same spiritual battles. Romans 13, 14, I love this verse, says this, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. So verse three says this, and Jonathan attacked the garrison, the outpost of the Philistines that was in Gibeah. Now we will see Gibeah and Gibeah. Gibeah, they are two distinct places here. They're not the same. They're about four miles apart. And the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. Now, what is meant by the Hebrews? Saul says this as if he's not a Hebrew. But if we dig deeper, we'll understand what's being said here. We're going to look at that. The term was not usually made by Israelites about speaking of their own people. And it seems as if a third party is being spoken of here by what it says in verse four. It says, now all Israel heard it. So you have Hebrews and you have the Israelites. What we have to understand that in this area, not only the Philistines were going in trying to take territory, but you had the Canaanites there and other foreign people in this area. So The Philistines, since they had learned metallurgy and since they were going into the Iron Age where uh, the children of Israel and those other communities there, they were still in the Bronze Age when the sea people, which are also the Philistines, when they come over from the Aegean Sea, they bring all of this weaponry. So they're putting all of these people in bondage. So not only Are the Israelites known for being called Hebrew, but everybody that wasn't Jewish wasn't Hebrews. They grouped them all in the name of Hebrews. So that's what he's saying. Now, as we read through this, you'll start seeing a distinction because he'll say something about the Hebrews and then he'll say something about the Israelites. So you had mercenaries in this territory that you could hire, and they would go to war with you. And it seems like that's what Saul has done. But as like I said, as we read, it's funny how they turn against one another. So verse three says this, and Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gibeah. He doesn't do this impulsively. Jonathan has a heart of faith. He's a brave warrior. He's a brave military man. We're going to find out. He's cut from a different cloth than his dad. You know, the Bible says, raise your children up in the way they should go and when they're old, they will not depart. That's a principle. That's the best way we should do things. We give them the opportunity to be raised up in the Lord. But we've saw what Eli and his sons were. We've seen what uh, uh, the other guy, I can't think of his name right now, and his sons were. So my point is, even though Saul, we're going to find out, is not a godly man, Jonathan is. The book of Ezekiel speaks about, if my father sins, his sins do not transfer to me. I've got to make my decision for Christ for myself. Yes, it's good for children to be trained in the way of the Lord, but it still boils down to what are you going to do with Christ? And it seems as if Jonathan chooses Christ, and, I'm, and it's just glad, it's good to see that. It says, of the Philistines that was in Gibeah, and the Philistines heard of it. This was a declaration of war. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Now notice what Saul says, let the Hebrews hear. It begins to make sense because he has called these mercenaries to come to battle with the Israelites. Verse four tells us, now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines. It wasn't Saul that attacked, we know it was Jonathan. So Saul, you can see already begins to take credit for something he has not did. And that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. As long as they were cowering down to the Philistines, they had no problem with them. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgog. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand, which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Mishmash. To the east of Bethaven. So they go twenty-five miles to where Saul is camping out, and they set up an outpost right there, right in his backyard. Verse 6 tells us: when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger for the for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. Now notice what it says: and some of the Hebrews the mercenaries that was supposedly was committed with the children of Israel, they ran. They crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. That's what hirelings do. When trouble comes, Jesus says, he's not a hireling. He's the good shepherd. He stays with his sheep. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgog and all the people followed him trembling. Verse eight. Then he waited seven days, according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people scattered were scattered from him. Samuel, this was two years out when Samuel first said this. Now, I'm sure Saul and Samuel had met back and forth. But even if they didn't, what I believe takes place that this was the circumstances that saw that Samuel would come down. Anytime they would have a war, a major war, Samuel would go down and present sacrifices. He said this two years ago. So I know even though Pre- Prevagen wasn't prevalent at the time or at all, he wouldn't have remembered that. So anytime there was a war, Samuel goes down and he gives the command and he makes the offerings there. That's what he was waiting on. The question is, why did Samuel tarry? Why did he wait so long? I don't know if he was held up. Did he do this deliberately? I don't think so. I think the Lord allowed it to happen to test Saul's faith, to test Saul's patience even if he would lose his position, we have to understand as king, he would have still, if he would have walked with the Lord, he would have still gone to heaven. He's going to lose his dynasty, but that was enough to turn Saul completely around. He was looking at earthly things. So when he loses his dynasty, he says, "Uh, I've lost everything. Even then, that wasn't the end. God will still be working with Saul. And then we remember when he goes and tells them to to go slaughter the Amalekites. That's when the Lord turns away from him. And as I was thinking about Saul and how he just literally, it seems to me, he gives up after this. I thought about Peter. I thought about Peter, what if he would have never, John would have never allowed him to go in into the courtyard. Remember when Jesus is on trial, Peter finally makes his way into the courtyard. I bet he wished he'd never went in there, but God allowed it to show Peter that to follow me, you can't follow me in your own strength. You can't rely on the armor of flesh. You must trust me. You must walk by faith. And without Peter ever going into the courtyard, he would have never learned that. He says, after you are, have been converted, Peter, strengthen your brothers, allow them to know that this is a walk of faith. Remember what he said? Uh, first, the damsel dam, comes up. You also were with Jesus of Galilee. No, no, I wasn't. You've mistaken and then the second time, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. He says the same thing. And then the third time, surely you also are one of them for your speech betrays you. And Remember, he begins to hurl down obscenities, trying to back away from the Lord. It takes humility to say I was wrong. It takes even greater humility to say, I have sinned. Saul couldn't do that. Peter could. And look what God molded and shaped Peter into. It's good to walk in humility. Saul still had every opportunity to have a good reign. That hadn't stopped. All he had to do was to confess his error and obey God. But that wasn't his heart. The Bible tells us without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith and patience, we won't be able to inherit the promises of God or walk in the blessings with God. But until we learn to trust God and wait on His timing, once again, that's where most of us get ahead. We get ahead of God. We can't learn the other lesson He wants to teach us, nor can we receive the blessings. He has planned for us. Saul didn't want to go to battle until an offering was made. But he shouldn't have made it. It was almost like when uh, Eli's two boys, Hophni and Phinehas, as they went to battle against the Philistines, they said, bring the ark. They didn't care about the ark. It was like a good luck charm. I don't judge people's heart, but I know a lot of people especially in professional sports, before they make a play, before they do anything, they're quick to do all this stuff. And I'm thinking, why are you doing that? Do you know the Lord? Do you love the Lord? But it's just superstition. And I believe that's all these offerings were to Saul. It says in verse nine, so Saul said, bring a burnt offering. I'm totally committed to the Lord. That's what a burnt offering is. That's what he's being hypocritical of and peace offerings. I'm in fellowship with the Lord. Bring those things here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now, it doesn't say anything about the peace offering. Samuel must have stepped in at that time. Now, it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering. That's amazing. It's, it's, it's crazy how it always works like this. If I would have just held out a little longer, if I would have just continued my trust that the Lord would strengthen me just a little longer. Romans says, hope doesn't disappoint. Hope can make a shame when we yield though, but he doesn't do this. The flesh wants everything when it wants it now. And that's what Saul is work, walking in. Romans twelve twelve tells us this, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. That's what Saul should have been doing, but he does none of that. He says that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him as if everything is okay. Either Saul was insensitive to spiritual things or he was just bold faced and arrogant. He didn't care. First John 1 tells us this. If we say that we have fellowship with him, And walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's what Saul is doing. That's what everyone does who say they know the Lord, they walk with the Lord, and their actions are contrary to everything the Lord says. By his disobedience, he proved that his actions meant nothing. Verse 11 tells us, And Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw, so he's walking by uh, sight instead of faith. When I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come, it's your fault, within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will, will now come down on me. It's about him. He's not worried about anyone else at Gilgal." And I have not made supplications, my request to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. If he felt that compelled, like I said, he should have prayed. He should have got his other brothers together with them. And he should've, they should have beseeched the Lord together. But it was none of that. Verse 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. That's a stronger condemnation that it seems like. In scripture, the fool is morally and spiritually blameworthy. It has nothing to do with the intellect. It's the stirrings on that's in your heart, blatant rebellion. Saul sees all of this. The Lord knows all of this. I'm amazed that the Lord has allowed Samuel Saul to defeat the Ammonites. A great victory. He hears what the, the uh, three prophets prophesied about him as he goes back down to Beth Shemesh. He hears all of these things. He also hears this in 1 Samuel twelve fourteen. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you, will continue following the, the Lord your God. But at this first moment of strain, this first moment of inconvenience, the first moment that things really don't go right, he falls and leans on the flesh. He has no trust in the Lord. Samuel says, you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. That was God's heart. Remember, God chose Saul. Even though he wasn't from the line of Judah, he would have allowed that line to run out. But Saul squashes everything here because he was foolish, because he disobeyed God, because Saul was a man of fear also. He was fearful of the people and that brought problems. The fear of man, Proverbs says, brings a snare. Jesus says, why would you fear man who can do nothing but destroy the body? I tell you who you should fear. Fear God that after he destroys the body, he has power to cast your soul in hell fire. That's who you should fear. And even if we just walk with that, Jesus would rather for us to love him. That's what he wants. But if it takes to be in fear of him to get you to heaven, he'll take that also. But we need to obey him because we love him. Romans 3.8 says this, let us do evil that good may come. That's the logic of hell, not of heaven. Let us do evil that good will come. That never happens. So verse 14 tells us this. He says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The dynasty Will not last, it will not even begin. God takes his hands off of Samuel, of Saul right now. And I was lying, as I was lying in bed, thinking of this scripture right here, I thought of David. And I correlated David with Saul here. We know David's sin mightily, his sin with Bathsheba, and how. What he did was worthy of death. There was repercussions for his sin and for all our sins. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, this is his discipline. I don't like to say punishment, but this is David's discipline and his harsh discipline. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Bam. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversary up an adversary against you from your own house. So there's another nail. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of, this, of the son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. My point is, David could have said, I'm through with it. I'm not following the Lord anymore. My punishment is more than I could bear. Isn't that what Cain said? Yeah, he could have said that. But David had a heart for the Lord. Saul didn't. He humbled himself and he still sought after God. When discipline comes, to the child of God. We must take it as God's love for us because that's what he is. He's correcting us. And the Lord disciplined uh, David so well, like he does all of us. When David writes his swan song, he says this. He closes out the last words of David. He didn't say anything about being a great king and a great warrior. He said, Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of, of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. David could have never wrote the psalms that he writ wrote without being broken. The Lord broke him. The Lord had to break him. And what he thought more of anything was being close, having a close walk with the Lord. And that's what he boasted in. So allow God to do his work in all of us. There will be discipline at times, but don't turn out of the way. Allow him to work in us because it's gonna prove for our benefit. He says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. None of his sons will succeed Saul on the throne. No one sins to his or herself. We must remember that. And you know, we could say this is a stern judgment for Samuel taking so long to come. Saul waited seven days. So why was the judgment so stern? But we shouldn't say that. The issue is what God is wanting everyone to see. You guys wanted a king. I'll allow you to have a king. His name is Saul. He will be David. There will be many more kings, but don't get it twisted. Yahweh is your king. And when any other nation may rebel against their king, they might war back and forth. But when you rebel against the king of Israel, the judgment is paramount. There has to be, I want you to understand that Yahweh God is your king. Remember that when I ask you to do this and command you to do that. It reminds me of, uh, if you want to call it a harsh judgment here, it reminds me of that first century church, Ananias and Sapphira. I'm sure we've all said, man, Lord, that was pretty harsh. I've said it. All, all they did was, say, hey, we, we gave money, but we held back a little, little and we lied about it. We would call that a low white lie. And if you're honest, you would say that. God said, no, 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 no. <laughs> I've got to prove my point right here. Same thing he does here. This is a fresh church. And Jesus Christ is the head. And there must be sound and swift discipline here. Now, I believe with all my heart, Ananias and Sapphira is in heaven. We'll get to see them there. I might ask them about this. I bet you guys were surprised. (laughs) Yeah, we were surprised. But it was swift judgment. And this is why it was swift judgment. Acts tells us this, so great fear. After this, he says, so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. They weren't swift to be a part of the church. So now what Samuel does after the judgment of the Lord, you will be quick to obey me. You will be quick to obey me. The latter part of verse 14 says this, the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart already. Saul will be a great warrior, but he was a lousy shepherd. David will be a great warrior and a great shepherd because David, understood being under authority. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. I shall not want. David understood that. And so when he came upon the throne, he shepherded his people Israel. He didn't rule with a rod of iron. A man after God's own heart here. And it seems as if at the spur of the moment, God had his man already. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. The great I am. He's in the past. He's in the present. He's in the future. So he can multitask. Of course he had his man. He had his man when he picked, chose Saul. Saul would have lasted for a while, but David was always going to the throne. It's just like us. We are justified. We are sanctified. But already the Lord sees us as being glorified. That's where he sees us. That brings great comfort to me. So keep walking. Verse 15, then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgog to Gibeah of Benjamin. It seems without informing Saul of anything, what to do next? He turns and he leaves. The next time he turns, remember, Saul will tear his mantle. So Saul still has a chance, but he doesn't say anything else to him. He just leaves. That was a foretaste of what's going to happen to Saul. But the Lord has not departed from him yet. And Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. He started out with 300,000. He dwindled it down to 3,000. Now he has 600 men. Take heart. Gideon only had how many men and he defeated a multitude, about 300 men. So Saul's doing pretty good with 600. He should have thought of that. Verse 16, Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Jonathan knew the Lord was a great God. Jonathan knew the Lord, if we had faith, he could accomplish anything. He, God does not look at numbers. God looks at the heart. Do we trust him? Do we believe him to do all of the things he said he would do? That's what we have to look at. So Jonathan is a man of great faith. It says, then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road to Orphra, to the land of Shul. Another company turned to the road to Beth Horon, And another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboam. Toward the wilderness, What they were doing, the Philistines were cutting off all exit ways, ways of escape, because they were about to go to war. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, notice what did they say, Let the Hebrews, the mercenaries, the fighters, make swords or spears, the fighting men. But notice what it says about the Israelites. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And, and the charge for a sharpening was a pim. A pim was a quarter of an ounce, it said, of a silver. About two-thirds of a shekel. The shekel was used for payments. It's amazing, they only let them sharpen their... Uh, agriculture utensils for the, and that's what they'll be fighting with (laughs) for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the gold. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. We're going to find out Saul and Jonathan had spears and, and probably a sword. But they were found with Saul, there it is, were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the, to the pass of Michmash. So they're right in Saul's territory. Chapter 14, verse 1. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison, that is, on the other side, the new outpost." but he did not tell his father. And he probably didn't tell his dad because he probably would have vetoed it. Saul was always, he was like the Calvary, the last man to the party, the last man to the action. Let everybody go first. He comes in, he swoops in, and he gets all of the recognition without doing anything. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron, which is in Benjamin. The people who were with him were about 600 men, so he had all the men there protecting him. Saul was hesitating while Jonathan was walking by faith, trusting in the Lord. Verse three, a very interesting verse. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh was wearing a ephod. This, remember, is the family line that uh, a man of God, God has sent a man of God to Eli to tell him what was going to happen to his sons and the reason being. 1 Samuel 2.31 says this, Behold, the days are coming. This is what he said, that I will cut off from your arm and the arm of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. The arm means strength. Uh, thirty-two, the latter part of verse thirty-two. And there shall be an old man in your, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. Verse thirty-four. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon you: two sons on, two sons of your two sons on Hophni and Phineas. In one day they shall die, both of them. That's exactly what happens. And Phineas' wife, as she's giving birth, she dies and gives birth to a son and they name him, she names him Echabog. Now that's ironic. Not here that she names him Echabog. The glory has departed. But check out who Saul's hanging out with. Samuel is gone back and he's with this line of priests that does not have a good future. But God in his mercy and grace is still speaking to them. He says, The Lord's priest in Shiloh was wearing an ephod, but the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Verse 4, Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrisons, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp, sharp rock on the other. These were two cliffs that Jonathan and his armor bearer are going to have to climb up, climb down, and go to battle in this ravine. That's the picture here. One cliff is named Bozes. It means shining. When the sun was up, the, sh- the sun was shine on it. The other cliff is called a Zena. It was meant for thorny. And they thought it was probably loaded down with blackberry bushes there. And if you know anything about blackberries, they have th- real thick thorns on them. It says the front of one face northward opposite Michmash and the other southward opposite Gibeah. Verse six, then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Jonathan regards these Philistines as uncircumcised, understanding that they're not one of the Lord's, not people of the Lord because the Lord's men were circumcised. That's what God says. God says, have a circumcised heart. That's what matters most here. So Jonathan, once again, is a man of faith. He says, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. That's an amazing statement there. What he's saying is, numbers don't matter to God, but are you faithful? Would to God that we would go out and share the gospel, understanding that what matters is that we're being faithful, being faithful witness. When we are serving here at CR, we need to understand for nothing restrains the Lord from overflowing our children's ministry. Nothing restrains the Lord or overflowing from overflowing our youth ministry. Nothing restrains the Lord from overflowing right here in the sanctuary. It's the Lord's choice. What we need to do is to be faithful. Whether we start out with few, nothing restrains the Lord. Do we walk in this kind of faith? How big is your God? We serve a mighty God, a big God. He can do exceedingly, abundantly, all that we could ask or think. Do we trust him? Jonathan was the one who says, let me shoot a venture of faith. Let's try this. We need to try things. We need to experience ways of ministering and sharing the gospel. Shoot that venture of faith. That's what he does here. The most hazardous, the most detrimental thing, I believe, to a church is inconvenience. I'm too inconvenienced to serve. I'm too inconvenienced to share the gospel. I'm too inconvenienced to come and do play games here at the church in game night. All of those things, the enemy can raise up obstacles, but we have to push through those things. I've learned the things that I don't want to do and come to do at church, every time I come, that's when I'm blessed the most. If I can just beat the flesh down enough to get here, then I'm blessed. Uh, it will always be like that because we wrestle against this flesh also. So don't let inconvenience get in your way of serving the Lord. He says in verse seven, so his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. That's a good friend. Go then. Here I am with you according to your heart. I believe this is the providence of God right here working in Jonathan because he is faithful. Then Jonathan said, that's all he needed to hear very well. Here's the plan. This is what we're going to do. Let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, come up to us. Now, that, to me, that's not even logical thinking. But God doesn't think logically. God wants us to walk by faith. If I'm, if I'm going to fight someone, and if I say, hey, come down to me, And if you come down to me, I know I'll probably need to run. He's got a lot of confidence. But they say come up. And they're going to be at a disadvantage going up. This is not a rock climbing wall, which is difficult for me to climb one of those. These are crevices. These are high crevices that Jonathan is trained and his armor bearer must be trained and climbing up. And as they climb up, they're coming down and they're fighting, but God doesn't care. They're men of faith and God is gonna bless them for it. He says, if they say thus to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. They're confident. But if they say thus, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has delivered them into our hand and this will be a sign to us. The Bible says one will chase a hundred; five will chase 10,000 only if we trust in the Lord, not looking at numbers. Verse 11, he says, so both of them showed themselves to the garrisons of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews, no, they're not Hebrews this time, are coming out of the holes where they have hidden, then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, "Come up to us, and we will show you something. We will teach you a lesson." Jonathan said to his armor bearer, "Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel." This tells you something about Jonathan. This should tell us that he has a close relationship with Yahweh God. Isaiah thirty twenty one says this. Your ears shall hear a word behind you, saying, This is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. That's intimacy. That's what we should all crave for, that kind of intimacy with the Lord. Verse thirteen. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him, and they fell, and they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half an acre of land. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earth quaked so that it was a very great trembling. The Lord God honored Jonathan and his armor bearer, and he sent this earthquake. That's amazing. Verse 16. Now, four miles away, they're on this high crevice mountain like Saul and his men see everything that's going on. Now the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked and there was the multitude melting away and they went here and there, speaking of the Philistines. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Now call the roll and see who has gone from us. He's worried about people uh, listening to his orders. And when they had had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, I'm gonna show you how he overruns the Lord once again. Bring the ark here, his good luck charm. For at that time, the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now it happened while Saul talked to the priests. They were about to either cast lots, use the Urim or the Thuman to find out should they go, what should they do. Now it happened while Saul talked to the priests that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priests, withdraw your hand. Don't pull the lots out. I'll make my own decision once again. So once again, he's not listening to the Lord. He's impatient. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of this myself. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled and they went to the battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor because of the earthquake. And there was very great confusion. Now notice the Hebrews we were talking about here. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before time. So they had jumped ship and went to the Philistines who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country. They also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan since now they were winning. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard and after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. Don't jump ship. That's all we're gonna read tonight. Don't jump ship. That's a good place (laughs) to stop. It might get tough sometimes, but God is going to win. Jonathan, hey, we can be what we want to be with the Lord. The Lord has good things in store for his kids, but we must walk by faith. Even when it doesn't look good, even when it looks like we're going to lose, the number is few. We serve a big God. We need to wait on the Lord's timing. We don't need to get ahead of God. And we need to walk this walk by faith and understand we need to lean on him and not to our own understanding. That's where Saul, Saul was a control freak. He wanted to control everything. And when he couldn't control everything, he would just fall apart. Our control, the Lord controls us. We need to yield to him and allow him to have his way in our lives. That's when we're victorious. So once again, it doesn't matter the size. It doesn't matter the numbers. Are we following the Lord? Are we giving him our entire heart? Because when we walk by faith, God is going to bless that. He's a big God, and he wants to bless his children. Don't let inconvenience stop you from serving. Don't let inconvenience stop you from being in the word. I know we are all busy and being in prayer, but we must carve out time. The main thing is the main thing. Nothing gets done except by prayer. That's a great book anyway. Anyway, let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, I'm amazed at your Scripture. Is sufficient for today. It transcends time because your word is living. Your word speaks to us right where we're at, Lord. Lord, once again, we are needy people. We're quick to try to do things on our own. And when we do that, Lord, you, you're a gracious God. You will allow us. But then when we make a mess, Lord, you're right there like the good heavenly father you are with arms wide open, waiting on us to run back to you, Father. So Lord, remind us constantly that this is your church, that our families belong to you. And Lord, we're counting on you to do great and wonderful things, not only here at CR, but in our families, Lord. We give our families to you. Lord, you know what we're going through in our families, but you are a big God. You are a God who can speak a word, a man will lay down and die, and he speaks a word, and he can rise up again. Nothing is too hard for you. So we're trusting you, Lord. We're not going to lean to our own understanding. So, Lord, would you watch over CR? Would you watch over every family here, Father, that we may honor you in everything we do, and we ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen.